0: That was an absolute disaster, to be real honest. He he had to kind of boil it down to them and say, let's talk about this thing called love. And we often think this is a, a, a chapter that's devoted to marriage, and certainly it applies to marriage, but he's actually instructing the church on the relationships we have with one another, and listen to how he proclaims the priority. And the importance, the centrality of love. He says this If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, that's a pretty powerful gift, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, I mean, Jesus promised us that. But I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Let me put that in our context. If my church has the best pastor, If my church has an amazing worship team, which you do, if my church has a beautiful facility, if my church has every ministry imaginable to reach the community that we're committed to loving, but we don't have love ourselves, we have nothing, all we have is nothing, and we've gained nothing. Let me put it in the context of your marriage. If my spouse and I have our dream jobs, We got 2.5 kids, I don't know how that .5 works. We got a dog, or if you're a cat person, I guess, a cat. We live in the perfect neighborhood. We take that dream must-have vacation to Disney World, the most expensive, I mean wonderful place on Earth. And we don't have love. We have nothing. We are nothing. We've gained nothing. You see, if love is this important, if love as scripture describes it, and as scripture defines it, is this central to our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with his church, and our relationship to our spouses and to each other, then we need to have a pretty good idea of what love truly is. And to do that, Paul wastes no time in painting a picture, and with every brush stroke, of description he paints. He's kind of establishing this picture that is in vivid contrast to what you and I have expected or experienced given our culture and all those songs we listen to and all those movies we watch and all those dreams we chase. Listen to how he describes love. I know this is a familiar passage, but let it soak in again as if for the first time. It says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. Well, that's not the love I see in the movies. It does not boast. It is not proud. As I'm reading this, think about your church, thinking about your marriage. It does not dishonor others. It is not self seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So much could be said about every aspect of love that Paul paints in this beautiful chapter. But there's one characteristic on this list that Pastor Eric asked if I would sort of explore with you today. It's why he titled this message when he asked me to speak, Hey, Nate, could you uh, speak at Brookside? Yeah, I I want you to talk about ripping the list. I'm like, huh? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, if if we really think about that, wait a second, I'm supposed to have a love in my church? I'm supposed to have a love in my marriage? I'm supposed to have a love in my relationship with believers that keeps no record of wrongs? If we're honest, the thought you're thinking right now is there's no way. I, that sounds nice, but no record of wrongs? Like, that's impossible. Who can do that? Paul, what do you want me to do? Just ignore the wrongs I face? Because we live in 2020. We live with this thing called social media. Wrongs fly everywhere. Can I get an amen? That's just a church way of saying that's right. Okay? There's wrongs everywhere. Am I supposed to just ignore those? Am I supposed to just brush those under the rug? The scriptural answer is no. No, you're not supposed to just ignore them. You're not supposed to minimize the wrongs you face. Well, then what do I do? Do I make sure that those wrongs get righted and in my way and in my time, by the way? Again, the scripture's answer is no. You are not in charge of making sure every wrong you face is righted in a way and in a time that pleases you. Well, well, then, what am I supposed to do? If I'm not supposed to just sit on my hands, that's called denial, and I'm not just supposed to take matters into my own hands, that's called retribution or vengeance, what am I supposed to do? How am I to not keep a record of wrongs? And that's the answer we're gonna dive in today. There's good news here. That's what we're gonna look at. But before we do, let me give you a little illustration. I brought with me some good old-fashioned junk mail. Anybody get junk mail? Not just the advertising kind. I've got here credit card applications, former things that I need to fill out with my personal information. And, uh, and, and so I, I brought some, some junk mail, and when, every time I get junk mail in, 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 at home, it, it frustrates me, because I can't just throw it in the trash. I mean, I can, but people say in this day and age that somebody wants to like, be me and steal my identity. I don't know why you'd wanna do that. That's a bad idea, but anyways. And so I have to put it in this thing called a shredder. But, but we've gone through a few shredders at my house. Something about you're only supposed to put in three or four sheets at a time. I, I like to just cram it all in at once. And so when I get junk mail, I have to shred it the old-fashioned way. I, I have to rip it. And, and I'm trying to rip it in as many pieces as I can so, so that nobody can dig through my trash with way too much time on their hands and try to put it back together. Because there's... There's information on here about me or somebody could fill this out in my place and commit me to things, and I don't want what's on here to be used against me. If this is a picture of keeping no records of wrongs, every tear, every rip I'm committing is the answer to what do I do with the wrongs. Every rip, every tear, every piece comes down to this matter this, this arduous, continuous, laborious process of extending forgiveness. Every time I'm wrong, if I choose to extend forgiveness... I rip it just a little bit. And then I choose to extend forgiveness again. And then when it comes to my mind, I extend forgiveness again. And then when my spouse does something, I'm like, see, this is like last time. I choose to extend forgiveness again. The only way I can keep no record of wrong is if I'm committed to extending forgiveness again and again and again and again. Forgiveness is the only way to truly keep no record of wrongs. Forgiveness is the only life-giving way to handle the wrongs I face. And so if you will, I want you to open your Bibles to another passage. This is where I really want to spend our time, in which a married man asks a very pertinent question. I want to go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know that this is the chapter in which we find that passage that teaches us how to deal with conflict to deal with it one-on-one at first, then take a small group of people. But after that, the apostle Peter asks a very pertinent question. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? See, I find it ironic and understandable that it's the one disciple who we know is married who asks the question. we're told that Peter has a mother-in-law and so it's fair to assume that he has a bride. I mean, I don't know why you'd want a mother-in-law if you don't have a bride, right? (laughs) Forgive me mothers, I've just offended most of you. Give me time, I'll offend everybody in the room. So, so, so this married disciple says, okay, you said that's how we're supposed to handle conflict. I get this, uh, this whole forgiveness thing is going to come up. And, and it's like Peter's trying to beat Jesus to the punch. I mean, he's been following Jesus long enough to know that Jesus is fond of saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said. So, so Peter's like, okay, I got to ump the ante here. How many times do you want me to forgive Because traditional rabbinic thought in that day was you should extend forgiveness at least, are you ready for this? Three times. That that was the norm. That in Judaism at that day, you were to forgive three times. But on the fourth time, at the fourth offense, I mean, come on, they got to get their act together. Forgiveness came off the table. And so let's give Peter some credit. He knows Jesus is going to up the ante. So he says, listen, I know the norm is three times. How many times am I supposed to forgive? Up to seven times? And Jesus' response, no, not seven. Try 70 times. Or, depending on how people are trying to figure out exactly what Jesus said in the original language, 70 times seven. And then Jesus does what he often does, and he responds with a story. And it's a beautiful story, but I'm gonna warn you, it's a difficult story, especially when you start to think about the ramifications for us in our relationship. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna read the parable in its entirety. Then I wanna kinda construct a quick operational definition of forgiveness, because I want this to be practical this morning. And then we'll explore Two essential practices to extending the forgiveness of Jesus in our relationships again and again and again, and we will not miss the gospel connect of this story. So here we go. The rest of the chapter, verse 22. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, here's how it works in God's house. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle the accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Debtor's prison was a common thing in that day. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything, The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But the servant refused. He went off, he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and he went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he paid back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister, say it with me, from your heart. This is not the four-year-old tell them you're sorry deal. This is extending forgiveness from the heart. So let's start with an operational definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is choosing to release the offender from paying me for the offense, okay? Forgiveness is choosing to release the offender from, me, from paying me for the offense. Again, the king took pity on him and canceled his debt and let him go. Forgiveness, listen to me, forgiveness is not minimizing the debt. The king wanted to settle accounts, right? And what was owed? We, we, Jesus says, here's the amount that owed. Now, oh, he kinda was sort of in debt. No, he was in debt to the tune of 10,000 bags of gold. Forgiveness is not minimizing the debt. Forgiveness is not forgetting the debt. The king is settling accounts. It's time to make things right. Scripture promises that all wrongs will be righted. You've heard the phrase, forgive and what? forget. I submit to you the reason we have to forgive is because we can't forget. We forgive because it keeps coming up, which is why we have to just keep ripping the list every time it comes up. We have to forgive again and again and again. So forgiveness is not minimizing the debt, it's not forgetting the debt, nor is forgiveness, and some of us think it's this, nor is forgiveness setting up a payment plan for the debt, right? Some of you, you probably not verbalized it, but this week, your spouse is like, well, if they do this, 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 and this, then we can start talking about forgiveness. Can I get an amen? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I knew you'd stay silent on that one. No, I'll forgive you in your mind as long as you don't do this again, and as long as you do this, and then Valentine's Day is coming up, so there ought to be this many flowers, right? Forgiveness is not setting up a payment plan forgiveness is choosing it's a choice to release the offender from paying me for the offense again in the story the servant begs for patience he promises to pay it back I can make this right just give me a chance have you said that to anybody this week have you had anybody say that to you this week I know I screwed up but if you just give me if you just teachers in the room have you had any students say that to you this week But in the way that Jesus tells the story, that request to be patient, I'll pay it back, is equally appalling and impossible. To rack up a debt to the tune of 10,000 bags of gold is a result of either sheer incompetence or insidious deceit. Let me just put this in perspective one talent, one bag of gold was about 20 years worth of labor for the average worker in that day. And the servant had racked up 10,000 of those. That's a lifetime sentence of death. Again, Jesus' listeners would have known this. King David, when he wanted to see the temple built, he donated 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver. And Jesus is telling the story in a way, this servant owed more than King David donated to the temple project. Every listener hearing this story would have gotten the point. What is the servant saying he's going to pay it back? There's no way. So in a stunning act of unwarranted compassion, the king gives the servant more than patience. The servant asks for patience, but the king grants complete forgiveness and erases the debt by choosing not to make the offender pay him for the offense. Now, if this is the court of the law, and I don't know if I've got any lawyers in the room, but somebody needs to object and say, wait a second, somebody has to pay. I mean, a debt of this size can't just be ignored. A debt of this size, you can't be it. Wrongs have to be dealt with, and you would be absolutely correct. Here's where the goodness of the gospel comes into play. Yes, somebody has to pay. Yes, somebody has to right the wrong, but you and I can't. We're like the servant. The servant couldn't pay the debt. It had gotten too much. He had gotten in too deep. The king in the story is the only one with the resources that can absorb 10,000 bags of gold worth of debt. Jesus is the king of this story. Jesus isn't just telling the story. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who's going to settle accounts. My father is going to come and settle accounts. I came like a lamb. I am the king. I'm going to take care of the debt that you owed. He absorbed the debt that you and I cannot pay, you and I would not pay, and the debt you and I keep racking up with each passing day. Perhaps the best illustration I've ever heard of this comes from this little book, How Good Is Good Enough? Any car people in the room, you like cars? Anybody? Get ready to cringe. The author says this, When my children were very young, I bought a used Infiniti. It was the nicest car I had ever owned. It was in mint condition, and I intended to keep it that way. Apparently, I was alone in my pursuit. One Saturday morning, I was taking out the trash. I noticed something on the hood of my car. I walked over for a closer look, and to my utter dismay, discovered that someone had scratched the letter A into the paint. Besides the A were attempts at several other letters. I was furious. Within seconds, my two sons were standing beside me as I demanded to know who scratched up my car. Something you think a boy would do. For a moment, there was silence. Then Garrett, who was five at the time, piped up, Allie did it. Allie, my youngest daughter, my youngest child and only daughter was a whopping three and a half years old. I called her out to the garage, pointed to my hood and said, Allie, did you do that? She sheepishly looked up at me and said, yes, sir, daddy. Had to throw in that sir, they're from the South. What was I gonna do? There was no way in the world for me to explain to Allie the significance of what she had done and what it was going to cost me in dollars, time, and hassle to get it fixed. There was no point in telling her that now I was gonna have to take the car to the shop, rent a car, pay the rental car, as well as for the repair. She had no context for understanding any of that. It would have been equally absurd to demand that she pay for the damage. Fair, maybe, (laughs) But unrealistic. What does two or three hundred dollars mean to a three-year-old? The numbers wouldn't even register and where would she get the money? So what do you do in that kind of a situation? Sever the relationship? Demand payment? Rant and rave? Okay, maybe a little. Of course not. Catch this. I did the only thing I could do for someone I loved as much as I loved her. I continued to love her as much as ever, and I paid for the damage she caused. God sees your sin for what it is, a debt that you cannot pay. There's no point in asking you to. To think that being good will somehow make you square with God would be like Allie promising to clean up her room after being confronted with the damage done to my car. Cleaning up her room doesn't pay me back. It's a nice gesture, but it doesn't fix my car. Christianity teaches that when man sinned, God opted for forgiveness rather than fairness. That's the beauty of the gospel, amen? Amen. Now the implication of the gospel is this though. Forgiven people should be forgiving people. Amen. But that's not always the case. Which is why Jesus tells the story. The servant isn't just forgiving, isn't just forgiven, he proves that he's not willing to be forgiving. He has just had 10,000 bags of gold forgiven, a debt he could not pay. And then he goes up to a servant who owes him an amount that could be paid and he demands repayment. The reality is this, forgiveness that is not freely received cannot be freely given. Let me say that again. Forgiveness that is not freely received cannot be freely given. The servant's, debt, the servant's debt's completely canceled, but it wasn't freely received the the king said you don't have to pay but the servant left the room acting like he still had to pay that he was going to somehow make this right believer listen to me some of you can stand here and sing songs and say i'm so glad i'm forgiven but you're still living a life as if you're trying to work off the debt that you owe god And when you embrace the debtor's mindset and you don't let go of the debtor's mindset, like the servant in the story doesn't let go of the debtor's mindset, you become very demanding of yourself and of those around you. Catch this. Ask ask the Spirit. I know I'm a stranger speaking to you, but ask the Spirit to, to just impress this on your heart as gently but as poignantly as possible. Your inability, my inability or unwillingness to extend Christ's forgiveness to my spouse, to my fellow believer, reveals a deficiency in my understanding and my reception of Christ's forgiveness. If I can't extend forgiveness to you, I have failed to fully apprehend and receive the forgiveness that's been received by me. The Bible's clear on this. Forgiveness received is to be forgiveness extended. Colossians three twelve to thirteen. The apostle Paul writes Therefore as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved, that's who you are. Clothe yourselves, don't be caught naked, don't be caught without these things. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. What's the standard? If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And it's not just one text and it's done. It's in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. So many of us have the Lord's Prayer memorized. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. In their book, Relationships of What a Mess Worth Making, Lane and Tripp sum all this up pretty beautifully. They say this, the Bible is a book about a God who forgives. It calls those who have been forgiven to be forgiving people. Yet forgiveness is one of the most poorly practiced activities in the Christian community. And so before we close out today, I wanna just offer you two very tangible practices on how to daily forgive. But before we look at how to forgive, I've gotta make this this final point abundantly clear. It's Jesus's forgiveness you and I are extending. As Paul tells the Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. He'll tell the Philippians, Pastor Eric preached on this just a couple weeks ago, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that we are to have the mind of Christ in us, but it's the mind of Christ that's in us that allows us to have this mind. Do you catch this? That you and I, our ability to forgive falls short. The only way you and I can keep no record of wrongs is if we continually extend Christ's forgiveness to one another. I can't make you pay me for the debt that you've wronged me. I have to entrust you to Jesus to settle accounts with him because he has a very unique way of settling accounts with those who have wronged him. So here's two essential practices to extending Jesus's forgiveness when wronged. Number one, continually pour out your offenses to Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 7 invites us to cast all of our cares or to cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. Refusing to keep wrongs is just that. You don't keep them. You give them. You don't ignore them. You don't minimize them. You don't try to manage them. You take the wrongs that have done your way and you give them to Jesus. You pour out those offenses to Jesus. He's the only one who has the ability to sufficiently absorb and right those wrongs. Choosing to keep wrongs yourself is the most dangerous, destructive thing that human beings do. The parable is clear. The servant, because he refused to receive and thus couldn't extend forgiveness, lives in perpetual imprisonment under the torture of his own unforgiveness. Friends, I don't know you personally, but in a room this size, I know there are some of you who have bitterness and resentment living in your your life and they have become wardens to your soul. Unforgiveness becomes a prison of our own making. By it, we sentence ourselves to a life of relentless record keeping that only sucks the joy and life out of me, all because I refuse to forgive you. Let me give a quick illustration. Any parents with teens or parents that had teens at one time? Quick show of hands. Uh, teens, they, they, they get beyond spanking or timeout corners and then you have to ground them and, and suspend weekend activities. Remember the old teen grounding, right? Grounding your teenagers is horrible, I hear. Because if you have Friday night plans and you ground your teenagers on a Friday night, guess whose plans just got canceled, right? Yours. Because you have to be there to make sure that, 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 that the consequence is implemented. Whether we've got teens in the room or not, there's a ton of us that are trying to ground the people around us by our unforgiveness of them. Oh, no, you're not. I'm not letting you off the hook. You're gonna have to pay for that. And because we make sure we ground them and we don't let them off the hook, every time we see them, we replay that offense over and over and over and over. You are punishing yourself, not your offender, by your ability and your, your lack of ability, your lack of willingness to extend Christ's forgiveness. Jesus says, cast those offenses my way. I'll take care of that so that you can live free from a prison of your own making. Secondly, continually love and pray for your family, especially when they feel like the enemy. And let's just be honest, there's gonna be times where the person you exchange your vows to feels like the enemy, okay? That's called marriage. That's called a healthy Christian marriage. And Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbors, And hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Talk to Jesus about your offender before trying to straighten out your offender and make them a little more like Jesus. Pray. Pray for your offender. I've seen it more times than I can count. Hard-heartedness becomes the death of too many marriages. But soft-heartedness can be the life support to the bleakest of relationships. And the only way to nurture soft-heartedness towards those who have wronged you is to pray for them. Not pray that Jesus would straighten them out. Pray that Jesus would soften their hearts. Pray that Jesus would soften your hearts toward them. Pray that Jesus would work good on their behalf. Offer prayers of gratitude and intercession for your family. Watch how he will free you and strengthen you with his compassion in the process. I wanna close with this, and I think the band's gonna come back up here shortly. One of my favorite definitions I've ever heard of covenantal love goes a little bit like this. Covenantal love is just the love that God has for us, the love that we're to have for each other as believers, and the love that we're to have for our spouses. Covenantal love is the rugged commitment to be with one another, for one another, unto Christ's likeness. That when I say I love you, it's not a flippant phrase, it's a commitment to be with you. That that when I wear the ring, I'm committed to staying in the ring. Not to fight against you, but to fight with you, to fight for you. Just as God is Emmanuel, God with us, our reflection of love is a commitment to be with each other and to not just be with each other, but to be for each other, to, to fight for you, to fight to give you the benefit of the doubt. When you said that flippant word, I, I fight to say, you know what? You didn't, you didn't say that to cut me. You said that because you're hurting. Hurt people hurt people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight to hold on to that. I'm gonna fight to want your good as much as my good. I'm gonna fight to extend Christ's forgiveness to you the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, the seventh time, up to 490 times until I go to bed exhausted pouring out those offenses to Jesus and say, Jesus, give me the strength to offer your forgiveness again and again and again because I know you continue to offer me forgiveness again and again and again. And why? What's my purpose in this commitment to be with you and to be for you? What's the end game? What's the goal I'm pressing towards? Unto Christlikeness. That my deepest desire for the people that I love is that Christ's life would be fully formed and shaped in them. And Jesus has a funny way of accomplishing his purposes because he, by his spirit, wants to fully form and shape his life in you. And one of the tools he gives us in fully forming and shaping his life in us is each other. Because if I need to be more forgiving, guess what he gives me? Relationships. If I need to practice long suffering, guess what he gives me? Relationships. If I need to practice patience and have more patience formed in me, guess what the beautiful tool for practicing patience is? Relationships. But we will not, church, spouses, believers, we will not love each other with this kind of love, with covenantal love, if we choose to keep a record of each other's wrongs. So let's rip the list by choosing to extend the, Jesus, the, the forgiveness of Jesus to each other again and again and again and again. Amen?